0: It's the BritFlix.com podcast. It's the BritFlix.com podcast. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Corin Hardy. Hello, Corin.
1: Hello there, Stuart.
0: And you are the writer and director of what film?
1: The film is The Hallow.
0: Do you want to give, uh, for those that might not have seen it yet, do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what the film is?
1: Sure. It's uh, a fairy tale grounded in reality. Uh, I wanted to make something which would be scary and, and thrilling um, and come from folklore and mythology.
0: And what is it about that that appeals to you as a, as a filmmaker and as a fan of horror? <laughs>
1: Well, it was str- as a, as a big fan of horror. Um, when I got to make my my debut movie or concoct it, mm. uh, I was looking for something, at least a new approach to a monster or a, a new. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to repeat as much as I love. You know, vampire movies or wells or zombies. Yeah. I felt there had been a you know, and and sort of possessed girls as well. Mm. A lot, a lot of that. Keep him sort of repeating itself. So, I I, I I was developing a number of ideas, and I looked to fairy tales as something which I'd read as and been read to as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's obviously a hell of a lot of uh, exciting, creepy folklore out there all around the world mm-hmm. to, to draw ideas from. Um, and so when I when I when I felt this was a good start i I wanted to try and make a fairy tale um, that felt real, that could be something that you could get scared by because it felt that it actually existed.
0: And what um, and where did you start to draw your your references from? Did you go specifically to existing legend, or did you look at sort of take a helicopter view and think these are the elements I want to take into my story? <laughs>
1: To begin with, did a lot of research and uh, explored different mythologies from around all around the world. um, Found a lot of similarities uh, um, between different sort of folklore, different mythologies, and ended up gravitating towards the Irish, the old Irish um, folklore Mm -hmm. of of fairies. And uh, it felt like the origin for me coming from England. um, You you get uh, sort of potent hubs of folklore in. In, in uh, Cornwall and Wales and Scotland, but Ireland felt also like a somehow more of a mystical place, um, and, and some, somewhere which the more I delved, the, the most sort of potent legends came from. So it was a case of really reading a lot and going into a lot of research, but then trying to find ideas that would be lend themselves most sort of cinematically and viscerally in, in, a, in a sort of more of an urgent survival uh, horror movie.
0: Mm. It's interesting that the the, the whole the, the old Irish belief in sort of fairies and stuff is much darker than our notion of the kind of playful fairy.
1: Um, yeah, that was, that was one of the things that excited me. Was you know we've we've grown accustomed predominantly to the sort of the Disney fairy, you know, the Tinkerbell. Bell, hmm. and, and uh, I remember partly in in sort of grim fairy tales and books from the seventies and pictures.
2: Hmm. Um,
1: but, but also when you when you read into it, there's, there's a much sort of more, much darker prospect and uh, the, the creatures of old Irish legend and the unseely court and the dinny she, um, uh some of the, uh, and the idea of changelings and banshees. Um, so it was like, what would it be like if these things were real and how could, how, you know, what would it be like to experience an encounter with them, uh, you know, over the course of a night? Right.
0: So where, so where did you? So once you sort of that—that's that, a real sort of simple horror conceit, isn't it? The idea of what mm. if this was real? So then, then you've got to bring your drama to that situation, haven't you? So, mm. so what were the challenges for you then, sort of mapping out a story that would fit with that? With well, that kind that
1: of idea. It, it, it actually was a far more tricky script to write, um, having developed a number of different movies and ideas of my own and worked on others. Um, yeah. What, what is essentially a, you know, I, I was, I'm, I'm a big horror fan. I'm, I'm aware of the sort of conventions and um, what I wanted to go for. And I knew it was going to be the, my first film. So there was going to be limitations with the budget and the time. Um, yeah. But narratively, my, my big thing was, you know, I don't want this to be a gothic scary, uh, sorry, gothic fairy tale movie. As much as I like them, they tend to go more for, uh, you know, a younger audience, a children's audience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so trying to ground a fairy tale with the mythologies into a, into a sort of a rooted reality was really the biggest challenge of developing a story. Because when you're, when you're writing a story like that, you're walking like this tightrope between, something grounded in reality but when you introduce uh you know supernatural ideas um that they can't pull the viewer out of the the, the sort of um environment and 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 tone that you've set
2: mm-hmm. um
1: if they do that then you sort of you lose them so it took quite a while you know it took a um I, I came up with the idea in 2007 right and it took around 8 years to get uh, the film made from you know creating the idea and outlines and and, and visual documents. I do a lot of drawing and sketchbooks and
0: mm. you
1: know gradually getting producers and and then finances on board and, and just getting that story to to work.
0: Well, it's probably a good place to point out that your you, your own background with sort of visual effects and stuff, um, and how and how much did that play into your kind of development of it, you know?
1: Well, I. I- I, I grew up sort of wanting to be a monster maker when I was around 12, you know, after after sort of being uh, obsessed with Ray Harryhausen's monster movies and um, kind of in love with monsters and, you know, from King Kong and Alien and The Thing and mm. The Flying and getting into The Evil Dead and, and um, movies in the 70s and 80s particularly. So I knew I wanted to, I knew my movie was going to be a, a creature feature effectively mm-hmm. to be, you know, something where you did get to see what these things were in, in, in hopefully a satisfying way. And that's the challenge to do that, you know, on a, on a low budget, of course, to, to be able to achieve that. Cause I, again, I didn't want to, uh, show something that would, would let down the, the mystery and the magic of, of, of the fear. Mm. So I, so my train, I trained in, uh, special effects and theatre design and come from an artistic background. So I, um, I wanted to do it predominantly as practically as possible and was looking for a like-minded, um, not, you know, someone who, who exists in England uh, who could pull off the amount of, of effects work. And that was a guy called John Nolan who I was looking for, like, you know, I don't know if you know the, the American... The great American monster makers like Rick Baker and Rob Bottin and Stan Winston, but I was looking for someone who could do that kind of uh, epic, effective effects work, and uh, I I hopefully I am really pleased with what John did.
0: Well, no, and I think I, I guess one of the things about real the sort of real effects as opposed to computer generated stuff is, as a viewer. Certainly, from my, when I'm watching the film and other films that use it, is that you stay in the film. I feel yeah more so because I think I think as much as CGI is advanced, I think there's a there's a there seems to be a naive over reliance on it sometimes or a quick fix sure that CGI does, and then it's almost like going here's the computer bit before we get on with the next bit of the film. Whereas. Yes. I think, you know, practical effects tend to tend to feel like they're, you know, because they literally are alongside the actor. It,
1: I think it comes down a lot to the filmmaking um, and the decisions they're making in terms of what techniques are the best to achieve an illusion. And, and from my point of view, although I, I definitely wanted to ground the movie in practical effects, it, it, there's very much a mixture of techniques going on to create a whole illusion. So there's, you know, practical puppetry and costume work and animatronics and prosthetics and makeup and fabrication very much then used um, alongside compositing and, and visual effects and CGI mixed together to try and create an illusion that you can't pin down. Um, <laughs> so uh, to me that's the, that's the only and the best way and, and some things you can achieve better practically, other things you can achieve better um, using CGI or visual effects and that is should be a decision that you make um, based on what the end result you're aiming to achieve is. So it's, it's sort of not applicable, though, I don't think, to sort of just uh, say, oh, Practical's better than CGI or CGI's better than Practical because they are all techniques in like a toolbox to be used together. Mm. So, yeah, no, no, no.
0: It's, it's more the fact that I, it's, you see all too often that there's the kind of computer wizardry going on. Yeah, and actually, there's not a thought of what you want to achieve. It's just like this. Yeah. Will, this will achieve so much, yeah, and yeah. so it will be enough. And- well, I,
1: I, I, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I mean, I think when you sense, as a human being, when you sense that you're watching things that can't be able to happen somehow, and 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 they, you sense that a computer being involved, um, or certainly from my point of view, I, I emotionally switch off um, a little bit more incrementally each time. Hmm. Whereas when something is you know, just presented as real, um, whether that is sort of photo real CGI that you can't detect, which is normally very costly as well, or whether it's just because you actually created something that you shot and lit in a certain way and, uh, you know, you, you disguise the, the, the hand puppet or the wires holding it together. But, uh, you know, so no, it was, it was a real, it was something I was very conscious of and I'm a big fan of effects and I love, that's probably what got me in, you know, got me into it in the first place was this sort of idea of, bringing something to life that doesn't exist.
0: Well, I've had um, Paul Hyatt on the podcast a couple of times oh, yeah. for both Season House and for Howell, and obviously come, yeah. he, he took a similar route to directing as yourself, in a way. He, he yeah. worked in the And one of the questions I asked him, certainly about Howell, and it applies yeah. to yours, is how, how did you manage, as the director, sort of letting go of the responsibility for the stuff that, on other films, has been your main focus, which is obviously the, the effects? How did you manage that part of the film for yourself?
1: I didn't let go of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, no, it's very much collaborative, and 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 that comes down to who you choose to work with, and if you choose to work with someone who who is brilliantly talented and and uh, you can trust, then mm. you know it was it was a, a something I was very. Eager to try and do and do it as well as possible. So I mean, I, I whilst writing the screenplay, I I've sketched in my sketchbooks and I had a number of designs and doodles and concept artwork for how scenes would go. Look, I did all the storyboards for the entire movie and um, built up a kind of library of reference images and you know. And then by the time I then got to take that to the effects workshop and the designer. Um, you know, we we had a lot to talk about how to achieve those things, and once mm. I like to see, I mean, when you see someone's back catalog and the quality of their work, if that's why if, if they're great and you, you choose to work with them, then you're already in sort of safe hands. So it was, um, it was just an exciting process for me to see those things brought to life. I've been posting on my um Instagram and Twitter actually behind the scenes. Artwork and my own artwork and photos I took on set for the past few weeks, and so I'm going to continue to do it for a little bit more. So you can see some stuff there. It's at Corin Hardy on both of those.
0: Okay, well we'll put that in the show notes so that people can go and have a look themselves. Yeah. Um. So going back to go back to the script then. Um. What were, what were for you the sort of hardest? What was the hardest challenge to resolve in terms of storytelling? And I'm thinking here, like obviously you've got the provenance of the the things in the woods. Mm. You've got you've got characters to make real, haven't you? Mm. And and then you've gotta bring the two together. So so for you what was what were what, what the what were the things that that, that, were, that presented you with the hardest challenge?
1: Well I think when you're making a horror movie you are you know I mean any any movie you, you want people to be gripped and keep watching and be emotionally engaged. So the challenge is in For the Hallow was to write a story that w- would keep you watching, would progressively keep transforming, and and uh, keeping a, a certain mystery going that keeps the tension up, and, and that you don't want to look away from. You know, I, I want when when I go to the cinema, all I want to do is be able to switch into another world and feel comfortable in it, whether it's a comedy or a sci-fi or a horror film. And um, so, it was the, the challenge was you know to create an environment that people could sort of believe in, find fascinating and be scared by and, and hopefully moved by. And so the characters needed to feel real. And that was down to, in the film, you know, casting some great actors. I was really pleased to get Joseph Moore and Boyana Novakovic and Michael Smiley on board, mm. Michael McCahan. Um And they obviously brought the slightly minimal um, dialogue uh, in, in the script to life. Um, but to, to basically create uh, a story that keeps sort of winding, it's winding you in, and um, just when you think you know where it's going, you know, I always was conscious to try and uh, transform that. So, but in a, in a way that doesn't feel like you're kind of trying to trick someone with a with a, a hokey twist, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. I think that, you know, I'd read a lot of scripts, and there's some movies which can be frustrating when they sort of pull you pull a fast one, <laughs> and and sort of there's a there's a twist that sort of defies the the law of the movie. So I was just trying to, you know, work mythology and ideas from folklore and mythology and rules into a, you know a horror movie, a genre film. Um, So
0: did you, I mean, did you then, as from a, from a writing point of view, did you map out kind of like all your rules of what was in the woods, as it were?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there was a lot because I was, I was in trying to present a version of what folklore um, and mythology might be like if it was real. Hmm. Um, I, I, I like this idea of, you know, fairies come very much from an organic place. Hmm um in, in forests and and uh you know they they're said to have been the original sort of pure race that existed um before sort of man man came and drove them out of their lands so i wanted this idea of that coming back to haunt us like nature's revenge so i wanted to draw parallels with from from mythology with with science and nature so it was it was pulling together mythological ideas with with sort of biological ideas um, into a uh, uh, you know a plot gra- grounded in reality.
0: Uh, I was going to say, I mean, just to give people a, a, an idea from my point of view, to give people an idea of, of, of the hallow without sort of giving any spoilers away. Just sort of general points is that I think I think you tackle sort of four key kind of stalwarts of, of, of horror in a sense. Mm. You've got you've got strangers in a strange land for starters. Yep. You've got the antagonized kind of locals telling you to piss off. Then, then you've got your bigger things, which is your people versus nature, and then you get us, then you get us on the real base stuff, which is just the dark. In the end, you yeah. so know, you you kind of play with all those elements.
1: Sure. To tell a story. Yeah, I mean, it's horror is very much about primal fears, isn't it? Mm,
0: no, without a doubt.
1: And primal fears are fear of the dark, fear of what's inside the the dark, uh, protecting your family, um, survival. Uh, so, and and and. I just tried to maximize as much as I could on that, uh, and, and, you know, very much the mystery of what's out there mm. um, in that, in the darkness and, and, and yeah, try and keep, you know, with horror, there's, there's mechanisms and there's, uh, reasons for the conventions in, that you see in horror films. So I was aware of what I was going along with and when I was choosing to veer away from it, um, and, and to try and, you know, present something uh, that had a freshness to it.
0: Oh no, without With- doubt, no, it wasn't. It, it, my, my comment wasn't to um, to make it feel like oh you're doing the same as everybody else. It was that I think so, they are they yeah. are what they are what scares us and what makes it unique is your take on bringing the fairies in. <laughs> I mean, interestingly, uh, I read I was doing some research on the Irish famine. Yeah, and there are witness reports from the Irish. Mm. That blame that that say there was a dark cloud of fairies that came over just before the blight hit Ireland. exactly there is a belief within certain tracts of the of Ireland that the, yeah. the famine was caused by the by upsetting the fairies which is That's, kind of I, I, amazing
1: I don't doubt that you know. <laughs> They were there already, the hallow, you know, the fairy. Exactly, ring. exactly. It's their land, um, you know. No, I mean when I was researching, sorry, when I was wrecking in Ireland, we shot it in Ireland, in, in the wilds of Western Ireland, mm. and um, you know, going out on reccees, the the location master would say, uh, you know, that there's a field over there. You see those stones in the middle of it? There's a fairy ring, and that field is sacred, and no one will touch it, and they, they won't use it for anything. They won't build on it, and they won't. Uh, you know, farm on it, because it's it's a fairy uh, mound. So it, it, there's, there's plenty of superstition that's still firmly believed in.
0: It's kind of, it's kind of like Ireland's best-kept secret, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you've let the cat out of the back now.
1: Well, I like <laughs> this idea that what, you, what happens in the hallow is like a one small tiny percentage case of what could be happening not only in many other places in ireland but also in all these areas where folklore comes from in scotland and in cornwall and wales and sort of uh, and then in other countries you know and, and, um oh
0: no, and do, quite, do you, do you read think, the story in iceland about the planning permission not given because there's a cave where where hidden folk lived
1: oh fantastic <laughs>
0: You imagine, you imagine telling the Secretary of State that in Britain, you're not building the uh, yeah. new office block there because um, fairies live in that cave.
1: That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'd, really I'd interested to see the conversations of the person who would be that person in the film who goes, "Don't be so stupid, knock it down," and you know, <laughs> kind of orders people to go in there. And then, of course, it happens. And then, you know,
0: <laughs> I'm thinking of like the the, mon- the mundane bureaucrat in the office at the council's going. Right,
1: then we don't give planning permission then because yeah. of fairies. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the original opening for the halo actually had a little bit like that. It began in a, in a council office in London where Adam, um, who is a conservationist, is working in an office and he gets offered this oh. job that takes him out and his family out to Ireland to mm. to, to live in the house and, and assess the worth of the forest there. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's very much sort of based on <laughs> a, a real situation.
0: No, 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 and that's—I think that's what the appeal is. The other thing is, I think I felt like uh, sort of visually as well. There was, there was a—it it felt like it was coming from the same place as, say, Pan's Labyrinth or something. You know, mm. that kind of, that kind of. It, there was a, the, the magical, but definitely scary. Yeah. It's kind well, of.
1: Well, I'm, I'm massively um, inspired by Guillermo del Toro's films generally, and he—he's very unique in the way he treats mythology and monsters. Um, and presents them, and and Pan's Labyrinth was, you know, something that really shone out to me, um, uh, and it was one of the first, you know, more dark, scary, uh, fairy based horror movies. Hmm. Um, so it was an inspiration, and I think when I was thinking of my my take on fairy mythology, I, I suppose Pan's Labyrinth was sort of seventy percent fantastical, um, without giving away what what it's about, but and maybe thirty percent. In reality, um, mm. I wanted to flip that and do the version that was sort of seventy percent in in a reality, and um, combine that with that sort of seventies aesthetic of movies like Deliverance or Straw Dogs. Mm. That, okay. this, the idea of a home, like a, a sort of fairy tale home invasion survival film.
0: No, that's a good way to put it. Actually, I never thought of it that way. Um, so, you've you, in the run up to this in the run up to this movie when you when you were developing it, obviously you were, you were um, Cutting your directing teeth on music videos, am I right? And and a few short yes, films. That's right. So, can you put into words mm. the the step up from those short forms, yeah. to your feature f- directing a feature film?
1: Sure. I mean, I was when I came out of college, I made a, a short film called Butterfly, which was actually a stop motion film, it's half an hour long, it took five years to make, Mm -hmm. and and I um, sort of locked myself away for five years and made this stop motion. Um, When I finished that, I knew I wanted to do a feature, Um, and the stop motion film got into Edinburgh Festival and and got attention from music video commissioners, so I I started to make music videos, which is very exciting because it was a real kind of fast turnaround, you're able to make these little short films in in a few weeks as opposed to a few years. So I, I, I sort of treated the period whilst making music videos for about 10 years um, as a time to develop uh, film scripts with a view to making my f- feature film, mm-hmm. which The Hallow was one. Um, and then I treated the music videos as a way of experimenting both sort of short storytelling ideas and um, and trying out different effects techniques and, you know, mixing different ideas together um mm-hmm. predominantly you know doing either music videos for underground bands where i got a lot of control or um big bands where i got like the third or fourth release where i got more control to sort of try and uh, I, I wasn't sort of going for a sort of slick performance video type music video so i was really just trying out um and also working with crews i think the, the good thing about doing the music videos was i made about Maybe sixty or so um, and you're working with you know f- crews for, for for a few days here and there and um, just getting that experience really and yeah. being able to turn turn things de- around in a short space of time so it was transitioning on to doing a, a longer feature film it was very um, it just felt like the training had <laughs> been had, had happened and it was it was time to sort of step up but also you know a film shoot still one day at a time so it was okay. you know getting I, I think it really helped doing a lot of music videos to be able to really pack in because a lot of music videos that i made had to be shot in one day mm-hmm. so you have like 12 hours or 14 hours um, and you, you know you're getting i don't know 70 setups in a day or something so Gee, um, whiz. you know <laughs> or, or, or whatever <laughs> So it, it just it it helped, and I really enjoyed the the feature schedule because you just were able to focus a lot more on you know telling a, a longer story and have longer to shoot it. Mm. But yeah, it was very it was very tough and very challenging and very enjoyable.
0: How do you balance the? I mean, I write, but I don't direct, so I never have that kind I've, of like almost like two people talking yeah. in the process of trying to make it because obviously. <laughs> I mean, the joke—the joke—the joke, the, the joke about the writer is I can write, you know, fifty elephants come over the hill, and somebody else has got to find fifty <laughs> elephants. Yeah. Now, if you're trying to write and be creative as a writer, yeah. but, but with the view that you're going to direct it, yeah. how do you balance that act between being creative but also being mm. practical? You already pointed out yourself—you were—you were very aware it was going to be within the limit yeah. of finite resources. So, how did you?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think that they're obviously different jobs for different reasons. And, you know, there's writers who write, there's writer-directors who write and direct. There's writer-director-producers who write, direct and produce. Um, And and they are three different jobs. Um, I think it's a good one. I mean, filmmaking and and directing is all about um, compromising and and adjusting and solving problems as, as quickly as you can. Right, <laughs> and so there's there's the sort of writing period, which involved a, you know a very elongated period of time developing and writing the script and rewriting and rewriting rewriting and rewriting. Um, as we got closer and knew what the kind of budget we were, then you know there's adjusting that script to the budget, and that's where, as a director, you're having to try and con- continue what you feel is so important about your vision. Mm. So don't like let it pass underway and you don't compromise too much that you you lose track of it but at the same time to get it made and to get other people's money to finance it you have to adjust and adapt and, I, and that period is kind of sometimes painful but it's also for the best um, and then there's the actual challenge of making it and if you've done the work before that you know the challenges logistical challenges are not as much because you're not faced with too many shocks with, you know, the reality of 50 elephants coming over the hill. Mm. But, you know, so you're, I, I guess to answer it, my process is very much aiming for the sky, aiming for the stars to begin with and not not being limited and just blasting out what I think is the best ideas possible in in the story in both sort of narratively and visually. And then as you, things start to become a reality, um, you know, you know what the budget range of... What you're going for is, and it was it, very much a big learning curve, and um, it's it's really important. I mean, I think if you're if you're a writer who can handle writing your script and then letting it go and letting it go out into the world, and you know, other people potentially going to change it in order to get it made, or whether you're someone who stays on and, and really like works hard to get whatever it takes done to get the thing made, whilst retaining you know what the most important idea was in that script to make sure it remains intact. So, you know, it very much is true. The film is made three times. There's the script that you write, there's the film you shoot and the edit that you cut. And, uh, you know, you you have to sort of... I had to constantly keep checking that I was... It was the same um, original sort of vision that I wanted, which was a fairy tale grounded in reality. And, Mm. you know... But along the way there was many changes and cuts to the mythology and the creatures and the, you know, the settings. And, you know, you're, you're constantly during the pre-production, you're working with budgets and timelines. And when we shot it, you know, you're adjusting constantly to the locations. And um, by the time, you know, so when we got to the edit, I was, the the film takes over really in the edit and the film tells you what the film's going to be because you have what you have. Mm. And then you, if you're lucky you get to do a little bit of reshoot and you've got the 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 magic of sound effects and adr and music and you know you can transform that movie again so i'm I'm sort of like the end product is basically what i wanted it to be eight years ago when i came up with the idea but along the way there's just many changes and i think it's like riding a um a kind of whirlwind and trying to keep all the bits <laughs> together I mean, no, no. Right. I think you
0: you, you you sort of describe you describe brilliantly. Like the 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 basic concept for any writer listening to this, whether they be writer, director, or writer, is that mm. your script is never right. No. It's only ever it's only ever <laughs> that version up until you know move right. to the next phase. And if the next phase isn't pre production, then you can bet yep. your bottom dollar someone's going to change in it.
1: <laughs> sure, true. No, I mean it, it. It does amaze me how like finding the Whatever the best way, whatever whatever transpires to be the best way to tell the story that you're writing is, and how many you know you think you've done the best draft of the script, and then a few weeks later you read it and you're like, oh my god, there's loads of things that can improve in this, and then you know you get some notes from someone, and um, before you know it, you 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 find you've just massively improved what you thought was perfect, and then...
0: Do, do, you, recall, do you recall a kind of favourite? I don't want not know who, told, who gave you notes that infuriated you, but do, do, mm. you, do you remember that sort of note that you went, like a eureka moment for you? Do you remember getting that at any, pro, any stage of the process?
1: Um, yeah, I do. It wasn't so much notes, it was working with, with Felipe Marino, the co-writer. Okay. And uh, there was certainly a period after, you know, the initial uh, joy of getting the scripts together... When it was sort of not working for various reasons, pr- predominantly to do with this balance of mythology and mm. it just it was it just wasn't reading right the mythology to the reality kind of um, ratio and how it integrated. <laughs> and um, I mean, I won't go too much into it, but it, but there were there were certainly a number of moments where the person you're working with suggests something that you thought you, you could never change, and then you you become open to it and you realise that actually if you adjusted. You make certain adjustments, and um this new idea allows the whole thing to open up, and whether it's a tonal thing or or a character thing or a um you know a mythological thing so i mean yeah there's definitely um it always amazes me really you know how stories evolve, and it's just through work hard work and so I'm, I'm, you know i think I think you know you can write a script in in a week or two weeks and and maybe you go and shoot it particularly with a horror film and particularly with mythology, hmm. for, for me, it needs to work and you need the rules to, that you set up to not be broken.
2: Hmm.
1: You can break rules in the first place to make something, but I think if you set up your own rules and break them, you, I think it's not truthful to the movie, so it's just something which took t- time to get right. If you don't already subscribe to
0: BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Now, go, go, when, when you were finished, when, when you got to that point where you're um, where you've locked the script as best you can. Um, so, in, in the pre-production stage, do you want to do you want to give us an example, sort of what was what was there left after you've done all the kind of cost cutting, you know, location, shape, you know, mm. every, everything's in place now. Mm. What still seemed like the insurmountable, and for you going forward, no, everything was like ready for what the budget could do, mm. and sort of any breaks you got that, that made that made your life a bit easier, or any any ideas you came out came up with within those constraints.
1: Well, it's all a bit of a blur because at that point, when you're gearing up for the shoot, you're yeah. in another, you're in another zone, really. Okay. Um, I can all I can say is one of the difficulties was knowing that I wanted to do this as practically as possible, and on an independent, low budget movie, the financing doesn't all they don't all just like stick it in your bank months ahead uh, and wait for you to go and make the film. It's 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 very last minute getting. The financing together
2: okay, okay um
1: so getting pre-production you know paid for and, and in this case a, a, a huge amount of of effects which had to be tailored you know creature body suits animatronics costumes all had to be molded on actors playing the roles of these creatures they had to be auditioned i auditioned over a hundred people to find the best creature performers I could, from contortionists and parkour experts to um, people who specialised in animal movements. Uh, <laughs> a whole variety, uh, and, and workshopped them, and really, they were all going to be, you know, wearing full-body costumes. You can't just plonk someone in uh, some makeup and expect them to be scary. So, so, can so... I stop you there,
0: Chris? So, so, even with, like, your experience of this field,
1: yeah.
0: when it came to making your movie, you still were sort of... There wasn't like an obvious answer out there for what you wanted to achieve. You still had to sort of look, as it were. How do you mean? Well, it, the fact that you say you went through hundreds of people, and I, I just thought this that 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 would have been things that you, you from from your own background that, that you would have like the easy answers to. It's interesting that no. that, that still presented a challenge for you.
1: No, sure. Well, I, well, I suppose what I was getting to was the challenge being that uh, to be able to fund that kind of. Um, pre-production. I see. S- things practically. Mm. You've got to have everything ready before the shoot. Naturally, mm. you know. Maybe if it had been, you know, more CGI weighted, and we had shot the film without any creatures, put them in afterwards, the work would have been the other side of the shoot, which makes it easier to budget because you're kind of like, you know, budgeting after everyone's mm. um, concerns and fears. But this is sort of like, okay, look, we need two months. We need, you know, a lot of work doing. We need the creature workshops to be moulding people and sculpting and creating the costumes and fabricating and painting and creating an animatronic baby based on a pair of twins that we need to cast in the centre of <laughs> five, five months old, you know what I mean? So that was that was probably one of the biggest challenges because it is a, a difficult thing with movies these days. You saw it having a low-budget movie, but to fund pre-production. Um, I think that's why a lot of effects do get just sort of done... Post.
0: I was going to say, I think, I think by what you've just described, you've answered the, you've, you've sort of given the case against my complaint against films. Sometimes is that, yeah, the way films are funded is it's all, it's all after the event, isn't it, rather than allowing you to get ready to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely. Can Some... you talk? Can you talk us through the casting process? Sure. Um, well, I always, I, I always had Joseph Maul in mind. He's someone who I'd watched in many TV shows and films and always he captivated me and and sort of blew me away with his focused um authentic emotional performances Hmm. um and i was inspired you know like i said by a film like straw dogs dustin hoffman's character or sigourney weaver in alien or jeff goldblum in a fly
2: Hmm.
1: who were all kind of uh brilliant performances um, from sort of character actors or yeah, um, not not the sort of latest um, superstars necessarily. And, and Joe Moore was someone who I thought would be really interesting in a, in a film like this. Um, i had been captivated by Joseph Moore's performances in right. film and television mm-hmm. as someone who always uh, did a really powerful, authentic, emotional performance. Hmm. And like a chameleon, he kind of You know, you could never, you know, he he kind of blended in with these films in in ways that a lot of actors don't. And um, I thought it'd be really interesting to have someone of his talent in a horror movie, uh, which I was trying to strive to create as high level of quality as possible in the cinematography, in the locations, in the effects, um, and in the choice of actors. Uh, So. I was very pleased to get Joe on board and, and his involvement also reflected well on other actors. Cause I think sometimes horror carries a sort of strange stigma about it. Like it's not going to be a real movie or it's not going to be a, a good movie or it's going to be schlocky or, or it's going to be commercial and they would do it for the money where this wasn't that case either. No, um, no, no. So, you know, getting Joe was great and it allowed me to, also, get people like Michael McElhatton and, and Michael Smiley. Um, the, the, the role of Colin was uh, quite a tricky one to cast because it's an important supporting character.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, both him and the, and the policeman, you know, needed to. I uh, needed to find uh, actors capable of carrying that sense of sort of ambiguity to them, um, and they both have a sort of they can both really hold your attention, Michael Smiley and Michael McElhatton, in a in a really, uh, you know, I needed to, they needed to carry mystery and and suspense, and and in in Michael McElhatton's where, uh, case, I wanted someone who was like a wounded animal um, of this character, Colm. So Colin was I had a number of people auditioning for, and when I saw Michael McElhatton's, it was it was instantly. He's the one. He's, he did a fantastic audition. Um, and and Boyana was kind of late in the day because uh, I'd looked at a number of actresses for Claire hmm. and some good ones when I wasn't 100%. And um, I, I'd i heard of Boyana. I'd seen her in Devil and Drag Me to Hell. And uh, she she was recommended and then she did an audition where she had to, she played the scene in it Without giving too much away, where um, where Adam is potentially showing her her baby, but suggesting it's not hers, hmm. and she played this scene just in a in a regular audition room, uh, and in, in it, her performance was so sort of affecting it, it, it gave me goosebumps. And and I showed it to a few people, and I showed her. And some other actresses as well, and everyone went for her as well as myself um, mm-hmm. because she managed to convey this truth that there was something in front of her that was, um, you know, not actually her baby, and so it was. Uh, that's the way it came together, really, with the cast.
0: And and from from a directing point of view, what's your, what's your style? Um, are you? I mean, obviously, it's, it's there's an element of collaboration in all in all of it, but. I was thinking more um, about whether or not whether or not there was a lot that you were able to learn from from your actors as a director. You know, was there anything you picked up during the making of this movie from the people you worked with?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're just constantly learning, aren't you? Anything you do um, until you until you really got. But um, <laughs> yeah, no. I, um, Yeah, I mean, it, it's very much directing. You're very much multitasking in every role, and and trying to, well, if you if you've cast well and you've chosen your crew well, then that's you know, you're learning from them. But you're it's a pleasurable experience.
2: Yeah,
1: and this was. Um, but uh, people do have their you know very different ways of working, so it's, it's not just a case of. Doing everything the same each time, I think you have to uh, be like a sponge and and take on board what different people, how different people work, and work out the way you're going to work with them. So, you know, uh, yes, I learned a lot.
0: And 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 you say you shot in you shot in Ireland, mm. which, which obviously seems ridiculously fitting, given what we've talked about in terms of the story. But how was how was that experience shooting in Ireland? I've, I've interviewed a few people who, I mean, one person interviewed who who actually doubled Northern Ireland for Dartmoor. They actually shot a film that was meant to be Dartmoor, but actually it was yeah, it was uh, the wilds of Northern Ireland they were shooting. Yeah. In. So, and they they, had a, they their experience of, of working in Ireland was really positive. I don't know what was what, what was your experience.
1: I loved it. It was, I mean, it was written to be set in Ireland based on mm-hmm. Irish mythology, but there was plenty of times before when we were gearing up for pre, uh, for pre to, to, to get the film financed where, because of different things like tax breaks, we were looking in Canada or Germany or Romania or Scotland or Yorkshire mm. uh, and I would have been able to make it in those places but there was a part of me that always wanted to shoot it in Ireland just to keep everything as authentic as possible. Of course. Because, uh, you know, you can say, well, a house is a house and trees are trees and they are, but uh when you're actually there it just feels everything feels more real for the cast and the whole experience and the landscape itself. So when the Irish Film Board got on board it was really exciting to know that we were gonna go there. So I, I scouted I mean, I spent months in Ireland and scouted over a hundred houses to find the one and actually there was only one that we could shoot this film in, which is the one you see. Because hmm. although on the page I'd written you know, a cottage, an Irish cottage by an ancient Irish cottage by a forest, yeah. which seemed straightforward enough. When you actually go to to find one, you know they tend to be the old Irish cottages tend to be very small and they have very thick walls, um, you know, heavy stone. Mm. So there's nice exteriors, but in terms of finding a location that was cinematic and had uh, a, a sense of uh, that you could get lost in in the house itself, which is important in a movie like this. Hmm. You feel just like you've seen it all. So, it was that there was a you know, really that was one of the challenges. Um, we shot in five different forests for different uh sequences. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, I wanted to find first of all a forest that felt huge and ancient, and sometimes you go to one and the trees aren't thick enough, or you can see too much. Landscape. um, In in, uh, other times, you know, we had an action sequence. I mean, we shot for three and a half weeks at night uh, in forests in the middle of the night with creatures and prosthetics and flames and all sorts. So it was important to get the right terrain.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, And then we also found this incredible, strange, really peculiar, almost alien-like forest within a forest. And once I came across it, which is the one you see towards the end of the film, it was so. Stand out unique in the way it looked, mm. um, it ha- had to use it, so it made sense that this was part of the forest that these creatures inhabit the most It's closest to where they're coming from um, uh yeah, so it was you know we had we had a lake scene, obviously when the actress has to go in the lake, and she did that for real mm. in the middle of the night um went underwater in a in a lake um, and so that no, was a, it was a great experience, and it made the whole thing feel you know that bit more accurate and real
0: it sounds it sounds like um a lot of what you've done making this movie has been about trying to get it as as right as you possibly can you know the decisions you've been you've been taking and obviously the options you've considered to
1: get to that decision yeah Um, Yeah. whatever right is i mean it's it's
2: yeah 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 yeah
1: it's an instinct anyway that of you know where you base your decisions as a director and and then uh, what you kind of push for
0: yeah i I just like like you say it's it's sort of i I need a forest but then you like you say you needed a forest that could do this this and this which obviously isn't there isn't one forest does it and you needed a house that needed that and then you've got the notion of just being an island or not being an island i think it's 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 really fascinating to hear those like all these variables that are just kind of Bouncing, uh-huh. bouncing off you and you're kind of like this, okay. this all started like you say 2007 where you're going what if myth was real
1: exactly <laughs> that's what's that's what's hilarious and always uh, exciting and, mm. and when you're standing there on set and you realize what got you to that point mm. uh, many you know strange decisions you've made <laughs> that led you there um, no 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 it's, it's a constant process of trying to make decisions and make the right decisions as, as quickly as possible <laughs> but but constantly tying down to your true vision no
0: totally well well look congratulations from uh, from britflix for getting your first feature film thanks very up much off the ground and I, I think it's at this point we probably should tell people that it's it comes out on dvd the 21st of That's, march yeah, and, is, and is already available to download
1: it's available to download and I love people to go and do that. But what I would say is I'm, you know, a big nerd myself and I still love watching interesting extras. And if you want, if you're interested in that, we've, we've made a really nice 50 minute making of which is very kind of. Uh, kind of rough and ready and, and intimate in that sense I shot a lot of the pre-production so a lot of things we've been talking about the creatures design the auditions the um, rehearsals and then on set and the making of the film mm. night shoots um, all the way through to post-production there's a there's a making of we called surviving the fairy tale right. on there, and there's a bunch of uh, galleries of the original concept designs and artwork so we tried to make a like a, a nice disc of extra, extras which I think is you you see that less and less these days with everything being downloadable. So uh, the DVD uh, is Monday the twenty first, and it's something that uh, I'd love you to get.
0: <laughs> well, no, no. Well, we'll put de- again. We'll put details in the show notes. So it uh, only only uh, for me to say thank you very much for lending your time to Britflix podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Cheers, if you don't already subscribe to Britflix. Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.